0: Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. Today's episode, Clovis a Conquering. Today's episode is going to do exactly what it says on the label. I thought it would be a good idea to get most of the military maneuver and hubbub out of the way early. And there are two reasons for this. One is that because Gregory's chronology is so vague, it is easiest to deal with Clovis's time and power thematically, rather than try to weave it all together chronologically. Second is because we covered a lot of it already while we were talking about Theodoric the Great's diplomatic life, so we can afford to skim and review Incident a little bit here and there. So, for this episode, we're going to focus mainly on the facts of Clovis' military career, and we'll just see how far we get with that. Then I'll use the next episode or two to drill down on religion and law, because he's important, even pivotal, in both of those areas. When those come up today, I'll just flag them and come back later. There is not going to be a lot of dates in this episode. And I hear your cries of distress. No, please, we love dates so much! And I have to say the sarcasm is very immature. I certainly never use it. It's because all the dates are arguable and uncertain, and so we'll just get things roughly in the right order and let it ride from there, with one or two important years highlighted. We left Clovis, having just split the skull of one of his own men for defying him, and you might think that means that he could afford to execute men willy-nilly like that. But the truth is, especially in the early days, he probably really couldn't. Initially, Clovis' territorial control was probably limited to the lands around his father's base at Tornai, which is today in western Belgium. The force that let him keep that territory may have been as small as 500 fighting men. It's about as many people as were at my son's middle school band concert at the end of the year. We've gotten used to the large armies that the various flavors of Goths and Vandals were dragging all over the Mediterranean Basin. No matter how much the chroniclers may have been exaggerating their numbers, those armies were certainly in the thousands or tens of thousands. But it was a much different story up in the more atomized north. The word warband is probably more accurately evocative than the word army. And really, though, even those armies of migrating Goths were more groups of warbands than coherent armies a lot of the time. However big his band of fighters was, it was enough to maintain Clovis' position and bully the native peasantry, but if he had larger ambitions, he was going to need to find some partners. And he did have larger ambitions. After five years spent getting his feet under the table at home and raiding the wealthy Roman towns around to enrich his men and ensure their loyalty and his own prestige, he called on the neighbors and put together a coalition. Or maybe he joined an already existing coalition. Who knows? Clovis's partners were two other Frankish leaders. Gregory calls both of them regulus, usually translated as sub-king or petty-king. These were Ragnachar, ruling in Cambrai, and Haleric, whose domain is unclear, but maybe he had taken control of the old Roman fort at Mont. That is pure guesswork on my own part, based on geography and the presence of a fairly major Roman fort at Mont. This kind of coalition was de rigueur, of course. Warlords would join forces as expediency demanded, and part ways once the objective had been achieved and the booty divided. In this case, though, Clovis's objectives were broader and deeper than the standard ones of raiding and plundering. He may have been emboldened by the death of the powerful and expansionist King Euric of the Visigoths, but in 485 or 486, Clovis and his allies began a campaign against the Roman rump states centered on Soissons and led by Syagrius. There were plenty of Franks working with or for Syagrius, some of whom had once worked with or for Clovis' father, Hilderic, and regaining control over them may have been one of Clovis' motivations, but we can't actually know for sure. Neither can we know for sure anything really specific about that campaign, other than it appears it came down to a single battle in 486. Clovis and Ragnar lined up against the motley collection of Roman federates and auxiliary troops that Siagra has commanded, and Calaric at the last minute refused to participate, apparently holding back to see who the winner would be and intending to join them. That kind of thing happens a lot in these stories. Coats are turned with reckless abandon to the point where we're forced to wonder if it's another one of those historical literary tropes. But on the other hand, the more history you read, the less you're shocked by human perfidy. Even without Calaric, the Franks crushed Syagrius's army. Syagrius himself escaped the carnage that was wrought by throwing axe and spear, and fled to the court of the newly enthroned Alaric II of the Visigoths. Being newly enthroned, and probably thinking he didn't need this kind of heat right now, when Clovis growled in Alaric's direction, he imprisoned Syagrius and eventually handed him over. Gregory of Tours takes a little shot at this apparent weakness, noting that the Goths have always been a timorous race. Don't let the other Alaric hear you say that, Greg. It should come as no surprise that Clovis had no use for former rulers of Roman rump states. He kept Siagrius in captivity until he had control of Soissons' government apparatus and then had him secretly stabbed. Siagrius was probably in his 50s and had ruled his sort of Roman kingdom for 20 years, and with him died the last vestige of Roman Gaul. Interestingly, it seems that his family came through the change mostly okay, as there are references to members of the Siagrii all the way down to the middle of the 8th century. How much difference any of this made to anyone has kind of been the central theme of this whole show up to this point, yeah? Politics had shifted, certainly. What about culture and society that is very hard to know I found that historian Patrick Geary's summary was both pithy and harmonious with my own understanding quote, "Clovis's absorption of the kingdom of Soissons was from one perspective merely a coup d'etat the replacement of a barbarized roman rex by a romanized barbarian one" End quote. the whole state structure passed intact into Clovis's hands He had access now to the administrative and clerical machine, and the territory under his control nearly doubled at one stroke, extending down to the Loire in the south and to some less well-defined frontier in the west. Along with that state structure, Clovis inherited a new role, as head of the Gallo-Roman government, and he became the protector of its Romanitas. Clovis, like others elsewhere in the west, embraced the role. Maybe not as completely or wholeheartedly as Theodoric would in Italy, but like other barbarian rulers, Clovis could see the benefits of the administrative know-how of the vanished empire and sought to claim it for himself. It was one thing to claim territory and another thing to actually be able to manage it, and the takeover of the Phantom Kingdom wasn't necessarily complete at a single stroke. Resistance remained at various points, most significantly the ancient city of Lutetia, though by that time it was more commonly known as Parisium. Paris held out for a long time. Exactly how long isn't clear, but once he was through the gates, Clovis made it the seat of his administration, and so Paris began its rise to dominance over the lands of the Franks. The resistance of Paris and the other towns made it clear that there were those who were not completely reconciled to the idea of rule by pagan Franks. The Romanitas that had been delivered by Clovis's coup was at its core Christian, the administrative apparatus remained the domain of the old Gallo-Roman aristocracy. Increasingly ecclesiastical in nature, it was the bishops who ran the show. It was so; it was not only Christian, it was Catholic Christian, and set a hostile face against the Arianism of most of the other Germanic rulers as well. It's possible that Clovis's next move then was calculated as an emollient to that element. The way Gregory tells it, the royal family of the Burgundians were forever at each other's throats. Seems to have been a continuous procession of royal brothers competing for the top spot and ready to bump each other off at the first opportunity the daughter of one of these kilperig was named Hrothildi, but today we call her clotilde clotilde had been exiled by her uncle gundabad a casualty of her father's political ambitions and we've met gundabad before he was Risimer's protege back in the waning days of empire, who had abandoned his imperial responsibilities to seize the Burgundian crown. Unlike her uncle, and most of the other Germanic royals around her, Clotilde was a Catholic. The religious character of the Burgundian court is a matter of some debate, but it is clear that Clotilde was at religious odds with at least her uncle Gundabad, the king at the moment. Gregory has it that Clovis heard of her from one of his emissaries and sent a message to the king asking for her hand in marriage, and that Gundabad was afraid to say no. That's as maybe, but Clotilde and Clovis were married around the year 500. Clovis had been married, or at least had a relationship before, but we know nothing at all about her, and she was clearly out of the picture well before any of this happened. He did have a son by that other unnamed woman, though, unhelpfully named Theodoric. Looked at, from the perspective of domestic politics, the marriage to Clotilde could be a sop to the Catholic majority, Catholic aristocracy. Looked at through an international lens, Clovis' choice of wife seems calculated to have the opposite effect entirely. Remember that web of marriages that Theodoric had carefully woven around himself, designed to bring the leaders of the West together in close relations and communication? Clovis' own sister, out of had married the mighty king of the Ostrogoths and had converted to Arianism at the time. And here was Clovis, choosing a bride who was the scion of a rival branch of the Burgundian royal house, whose religious attitudes put her at odds with all the other heads of state that surrounded her. It seems deliberately provocative, but maybe not. I'm going to do a little shimmy and faint here because this is one of those spots, this traditionally would be the point where I would talk about Clotilde and her role in Clovis's conversion to Christianity. But I'm not going to right now, because I want to spend more time on the subject of conversion than I have room for in the episode. So, flagging, as i mentioned in the intro. We'll come back to it. Just for the moment. Let's say, according to Gregory, Clotilde worked on her husband, and by a combination of her influence and divine intervention at a key battle, Clovis was converted to Catholicism. That made him the first major Germanic leader to accept the majority faith of the former empire and most of his subject citizens. We've come we'll come back to it. But for now let's move on. Conversion made Clovis a Christian but it didn't make him any less fighty. The key battle according to Gregory was against the Alamanni who lived along the upper Rhine and resulted in their submission to Clovis. As usual with Gregory Everything is compressed into one battle, but the reality is probably more complex, with the battle standing in for years of low-level conflict along the river borders. It certainly is true that around 500, Theodoric dealt with an influx of Alamanni immigrants in his northern territories, which probably was a knock-on effect from Clovis's campaigns. Once he had secured Paris and put the Alamanni in their place, Clovis established some kind of nominal sovereignty over Brittany as well, at least enough to cover his western flank. This seems to have been mostly diplomatic rather than a military victory. As I'm sure I have mentioned in the past, Brittany was protected by dense forests and rocky terrain and would largely go its own way politically and culturally for several centuries. More exciting were developments in Clotilde's homeland, the Kingdom of the Burgundians. Some time after his conversion, Clovis received a message from one of his uncle's-in-law, the Burgundian Goda Gisel. Gundabad, the king, and Godegisel were ruling their territory in a partnership, because that always goes well for everybody. The territory in question, by the way, is along the Rhône and saint rivers from somewhere around Dijon all the way down to Marseille. When word reached them of Clovis' victories over Syagoras and the Alamanni, Godegisel sent a message to Clovis. He offered any amount of tribute Clovis cared to name in return for the Franks' help in driving out his brother Gundabad. Clovis, the good Christian king, full of a sense of fair play, accepted this offer without hesitation and promised that he would indeed help Godegisel when the moment came. Just to make sure that the moment came at an opportune um, moment, Clovis gathered his army and marched south toward the Burgundians' territories. Gundabad responded with a message to his brother, calling for a united response. Godegisel, the model of fraternal fidelity, marched with Gundabad until they met the Franks at Dijon. The scheme worked out exactly as Clovis and Godegisel had planned. Godegisel is a very hard name to keep saying over and over again, just for the record. But he and his men turned on Gundabad, and Gundabad fled. Godegisel apparently decided that this was a good day's work, and he agreed with Clovis to hand over part of his newly won kingdom and withdrew to Vienne to drink some wine or something. But Clovis's blood was up, and he pursued Gundabad all the way down to Avignon, which is kind of a long way, and laid siege to him there. Gundabad felt the pressure, according to Gregory. He summoned a local noble, fellow named Aridius, with a reputation for good advice, and asked what he should do. The words that Gregory puts in Gundabad's mouth at this point is interesting. Quote, I am surrounded by pitfalls, and what to do I cannot tell. These barbarians have launched this attack against me. If they kill us two, they will ravage the whole neighborhood. Gregory here seems to be acknowledging that there's a hierarchy of Romanness among the Germanic kingdoms, with the Burgundian ruler claiming to be less barbarian than his Frankish attackers. He has a point. I've said it before that the Burgundians could claim to be the most Romanized of all the Germanic tribes that had made their way into the empire over the last hundred years. Gundabad and his successors would enjoy the direct support of the emperor in Constantinople at various times, which we've already heard about in episodes about Theodoric the Great. The difference between Gundabad and Clovis, as far as Gregory is concerned at this point, is that Gundabad remains an Arian heretic, while Clovis has moved over to the right side of the religious table, the more Roman side, the Catholic side, and that's what makes all the difference. Anyway, back to the story. This loyal Aridius suggested that he go to Clovis pretending to turn traitor against Gundabad and undermine Clovis' efforts from within. I'm not sure if undermining is the right word for what Aridius did, actually. Aridius pointed out to Clovis that all he was doing by wasting the countryside around Avignon was assuring his own men's eventual starvation, since Gundabad was very well provisioned inside the town. Wouldn't it be better, Aridius suggested, for Clovis to demand a tribute from Gundabad and settle the whole thing that way? gundabad agreed to an appropriate amount and paid up for the current year no word on whether or not it was the whole year or if it was prorated and clovis went home satisfied for the moment you may have noticed that actually nothing between gundabad and Gizel was settled in any of that story gregory finishes it for us and so i will too though it does not though it does technically count as a digression Sometime after his confrontation with Clovis, Gundabad regenerates his mana and marches against his treacherous brother. He seems to have caught Godegisel napping and trapped him in that city of Vienne. When it became clear that the city wasn't provisioned for a long siege, Godegisel made the harsh but quite common decision to throw out all the non-combatants so that they could take their chances. Now, if you're planning on something like this, if you're going to need to withstand a long siege or, say, take over a giant social media company, you want to make sure that you don't accidentally throw out any critical engineers. One of the folks unceremoniously turfed out of Vienne was the engineer in charge of the aqueduct, and he was not happy about being unceremoniously turfed out. And they hadn't invented non-disclosure agreements yet, so this engineer stormed straight over to Gundabad and showed him where he could access the aqueduct, and through it, The city. Gundabad's men caught Godegiesel by surprise from behind and chased him into a church. And that went as well as it usually seems to, and Godegiesel was killed along with the bishop he was with. It was an Arian church and an Arian bishop, though, so that's okay as far as Gregory's concerned. Gundabad finally became sole king of the Burgundians and eventually, as a little bonus, converted to Catholicism. To recap quickly, since I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Clovis has covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. By removing Syagrius from Soissons, he set himself up as the power in northern Gaul, and barely paused for breath before projecting that power. The Alamanni have been forced to submit. The Armoricans, aka the Bretons, also acknowledge his authority in some kind of vague way, and that gives him control of pretty much all of Gaul north of the Loire. Just like his neighbors, the Visigoths and Burgundians, he has access to the infrastructure and leadership of the old Roman aristocracy, but unlike them, he shares the religious views of that old aristocracy, and that means that his reign rests on more than just the brute force of his loyal warriors. There is also a moral component now. Clovis's conversion became a destabilizing influence on his neighbors. According to Gregory, some of the Roman subjects of the Visigoths in particular began to wonder if they might not prefer rule by the Franks. Alaric II, that king of the Visigoths who had surrendered Siagrius without much hesitation, asked Clovis for a meeting. As the two premier powers in Gaul, they should probably get the terms of their relationship clear, and Alaric no doubt had heard the rumblings of his own Catholic subjects. Clovis agreed, and the two met on an island in the Loire, near Tours. Gregory was possibly reporting local tradition here as he was the Bishop of Tours. The two broke bread together, swore eternal friendship, and then returned to their own territory. It should not surprise you that eternal friendship would turn out to be very brief indeed. Gregory wants to present Clovis' war against the Visigoths as a straightforward crusade, entirely religiously motivated. He has Clovis gathering his men and telling them, I find it hard to go on seeing these Aryans occupying a part of Gaul. Yeah, sure, right. The actual causes of the war between them, the war that Theodoric and Cassiodorus put so much effort into trying to prevent, are probably ultimately unknowable. But Cassiodorus' letters, remember, give a strong impression that the causes were seen as trivial and maybe even personal. My own impression, and that's what it is, my personal impression, so keep that in mind, is that the causes were actually quite simple. Clovis, having been so quickly successful in acquiring so much, wanted to go on succeeding and acquiring. The crocodile in the goldfish pond. It's likely, under these circumstances, that no amount of diplomacy, marriage, or water clock gifts from Theodore could have stopped the ravenous Frankish king. And I have to admit, of course, to being swayed more than a bit by my own preconceived image of said Frankish king. Among the leaders Clovis brought with him was at least one prince of the riparian Franks, the Franks from across the river. And so Clovis had at minimum convinced his cousins that fighting with him held some advantage, and maybe had he held some sway across the Rhine by now with those cousins as well. When he launched his campaign against Alaric II, Clovis and his army passed through Tours. That was, of course, Gregory's hood, The fact that it all took place 30 years before Gregory's birth is irrelevant. Gregory bends over backward at this point to present Clovis as the ideal Christian king on the warpath, solicitous of Gregory's favorite saint and tourist patron, St. Martin. And Clovis forbids his men from raiding the area for anything other than fodder, and then kills a soldier for gathering fodder too roughly. He sends valuable gifts to the cathedral church, some of which were probably still there during Gregory's time. Signs and portents followed a doe showed the army where to ford the swollen river near Vienne, not not the Vienne in Burgundy. This is a different vienne, and a pillar of fire rose near the Church of St. Hilary to demonstrate divine approval for Clovis's mission, just like the ones that guided the Israelites in the book of Exodus now. I know you may be thinking that I spent nearly a whole paragraph in the last episode singing the praises of Gregory as a historian, as a man in command of the facts, so how does that square with all this stuff about pillars of fire and miraculous deer? The answer is that there is no contradiction at all in Gregory's mind. History, in his worldview, is the unfolding of God's divine plan. It was absolutely expected that the Lord should intervene and that the progression of history today should rhyme with the sacred history of the scripture. All of the contemporary sources, from Augustine to Bede, are full of miraculous occurrences, generally presented with absolute confidence in their self-evident reality, and accepting that the chroniclers believed them is absolutely necessary to understanding the mindset of the period. All of that said, the reality of Clovis's progress south was probably much more prosaic. He most likely sought to limit the damage done by his army generally, as long as they were on his own side of the Loire, and probably sent gifts and sought support from all the major bishops along the way. Whatever his real motivations in this largest of his campaigns, he certainly courted the religious leaders of both his own territories and those he hoped to conquer. It was just good politics. After all the miraculous build up, the actual confrontation between Frank and Visigoth has a distinct whiff of anti climax. It came in 507, and here is the passage from Gregory. King Clovis met Alaric II, king of the Visigoths, on the battlefield of Vuille, near the tenth milestone outside of Poitiers. Some of the soldiers engaged hurled their javelins from a distance, others fought hand to hand. The Goths fled, as they were prone to do so, and Clovis was the victor, for God was on his side. Let's take a moment to imagine the actual carnage for a second. The Visigoths continued to be mainly a cavalry force, with the lance as their favorite weapon. And we've also already talked about the Franks and their famous throwing axes, the Franciscus. I shudder to imagine what massed Franciscus would do to massed cavalry. It must have been absolutely horrifying. Anyway, Alaric II was killed. Clovis might also have been wounded. Gregory says he was attacked by two gods with their spears, and it, quote, was his leather corslet that saved him and the sheer speed of his horse, but he was very near to death. Now, that's ambiguous. It may mean that that was just a close shave. Also, in passing, it's interesting to me that the king of the Franks was satisfied with simple leather armor. But anyway, details from there of the progression of the war are spotty. Theodoric, Clovis' eldest son, was sent on an independent campaign eastward to secure the Auvergne, taking Clermont, Rode, and finally Albi. Meanwhile, Gundobad had been prevailed upon to take part, and the Burgundian marched down the Rhone to lay siege to Arles in support of the Franks. It was at this stage that Theodoric the Great finally intervened, and the forces of the Ostrogoths broke the siege and drove the Burgundians away from the city. That was probably cold comfort to the Visigoths, whose losses continued. Clovis captured Bordeaux shortly after the Battle of Vouillé and spent the winter there. When the campaign season began again, he consolidated his gains, attacking and capturing Toulouse along with the royal treasury, and finally finishing it off with the capture of Angoulême. The Franco-Visigothic War was over, with virtually all of Aquitania now in the hands of the Franks. The Visigoths were driven over the Pyrenees, and forced to reconstitute themselves in what had been basically hinterland before. Thanks to Theodoric's intervention, the Franks were prevented from capturing a Mediterranean port, but as we've talked about on the episodes on Theodoric, there, that was more benefit to the Ostrogothic king than it was to the Visigoths. Clovis's achievement is undeniable. The map of his conquest is legitimately on a par with that of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. In the 26 years since his accession as Rex Francorum, he had increased his territory fourfold, at least and created what was, for all intents and purposes, a new entity. It is now appropriate to, for the first time, refer to Francia, the Kingdom of the Franks, or France. Now, it's easy to dismiss all of this as just military achievement, and Lord knows that Clovis was a war leader first and foremost, and probably also second and third. But there is more to it than that. There is another act remaining in the drama of his reign, the slightly out-of-order securing of his power at home among his own people. But I'm going to save that part for next time. I feel like I've gone on long enough for now. So next time we will finish off those bare facts of Clovis' reign and then take a harder look at the essential moments that I had skated by earlier, the religious conversion. I have a few shout-outs to make, the first one being to whoever came up with the section headings in Clovis' Wikipedia article. Seriously, go check it out. There is a talent for alliteration there. The truth is that there's so little raw information about Clovis that it's very hard to write about him and offer much more than is already there in that article. Sorry about that. Sometimes that's just how it is. do my best, though. Other more important shout-outs go to Matthias, Ludger, Katrin, Sietze, Ryan, Francis, and Frank, with apologies for pronunciation bungling that I may have committed along the way. I'm sure there were several all of whom contributed through Ko-fi.com. Bonus shoutouts to monthly contributors, Ellen and Scott. My gratitude is limitless. There are a whole bunch of other apologies to make as well about episode delays and so forth, but you've heard it all before, so I'll let you fill it in. That's all for this time. Until next episode, take care.